0: You're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Anthology.
1: Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Sterling's iconic series one episode at a time. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows such as Black Mirror and the Jordan Peele-produced Twilight Zone reboot in bonus episode review series, and I also round out each episode of the podcast with a brief review of the classic 1955 to 1956 sci-fi anthology show, Science Fiction Theater. You can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ov anthologypod or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Today on the show, I'll be discussing Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? It's the 28th and penultimate episode of the Twilight Zone's second season, and it originally originally aired on May 26, 1961. And I will be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 9, Death at 2 AM. But first, I have some housekeeping and some things to kind of go over before I get into my review. So, first of all, in my last episode, uh, my last main episode, uh, covering the mind and the matter, I mentioned that the. Music that was played, and it was uh, more jovial than usual, and and really plays up the co- uh, comedic angle of it. That music was actually also used in the earlier season two episode, "The Whole Truth." So I just wanted to kind of point that out. And also, I just want to thank everyone for the kind words and the warm welcome back to the podcasting world here. Um, I got a lot of good feedback and a lot of good just response from uh, relaunching the podcast, and I can't thank you guys enough. It was really nice to hear from you guys. So I'm just going to kind of run down some tweets and posts and everything that I uh, uh, received. So a good friend of the show and good friend of all podcasts that I do, uh, Aaron Jones, uh, he said, great to have a fresh episode of uh, Anthology. Uh, so thank you, Aaron, and uh, my screenshots are huge here. Um. So and then Kevin Clowder. I really hope that I'm pronouncing that right. That's the first time I've ever said his name out loud. Uh. But he's been uh a a, a, a friend of the show for a long time. But uh, he shared a he shared a gif. Uh, of a cat it was it was cute um, let's see and then on Facebook Monica Cantu said nice and first time commenter Christy Sullivan said I've never written or commented before but I really enjoy your show I was delighted to see you released an episode and I listened almost immediately keep up the great work on a really fun podcast uh, thank you so much Christy I really appreciate that And, uh, let's see. And then also good friend of the show, uh, Matt and Draco said, Oh man, an anthology episode as an Easter present. (laughs) Uh, and then I responded with it has risen. Um, so yeah. So, uh, thank you guys for your support and for listening and for, uh, staying with me as I go through all of these hiatuses, hiatus, I, um, (laughs) hiatuses, um, and get back into the groove of things. Let's see, what else? Uh, oh, also, I am toying with the idea of doing Patreon, um, exclusive recordings. Um, before recording this episode, I did record a brief Patreon specific, um, recording for Patreon for anthology listeners. So on Patreon, if you go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, you can pledge a minimum rate of $1 per month and, uh, you get access to a bunch, uh, a whole backlog of, um, of, uh, audio content on an RSS feed specifically for Patreon supporters. And I'm going to start doing more anthology focused stuff. So anytime that I sit down to record an episode of anthology, I'm going to do kind of a, a pre-show recording of me talking about science fiction and science fiction I've read or watched or consumed in, in, in any other format. I don't know what other format there is, um, listen to, I guess. Um, uh, in in uh, as kind of a pre-show kind of rambling, um, the, the pre-show ramble to the actual show rambling that I do on this podcast. So I recorded one. It's only like eight minutes long. They'll hopefully get longer as I you know focus more on it. So um, I'm probably going to throw that up as I do this. So uh, feel free to uh, join us on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash ObsessiveViewer. Uh, minimum rate one dollar per month gets you access to that RSS feed. Basically, you sign up pledge the dollar and then you get um, an RSS feed link which is something you can just copy and paste it into your um, into your podcast app and it should pop up with the official uh, Patreon feed um, yeah there are up to I think 63 or 64 um, episodes worth of Patreon recording they vary in length um, so yeah feel free to uh, do that if you want to support the show If not, no big deal. Um, Also, at the rate of $5 per month, you get access to videos that we record occasionally. Um, We've been really bad about that, especially since we can't go to the movie theater anymore (laughs) right now. So, yeah. So, anyway, uh, enough shilling. Um, Before I get into the actual review, though, I do want to just say that I hope you guys are being safe and being healthy and everything. We're kind of... It's still a weird time. Uh, it's funny because I tried to look up like Twilight Zone news, but every news item that I had that came up was just people talking about how uh, the world we live in right now is very much like the Twilight Zone, which I am in agreement with. A uh, very weird time. Hope you guys are being safe, being healthy and everything, and hopefully, that, hopefully my podcasting can... Uh, do It's part to kind of let you forget um, about the craziness that's going on. So without further ado, let's go into anthology. So I'm reviewing Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? It is a it, it feels like a big episode. Um because this is one of those iconic episodes that I'm always kind of afraid to get to in this podcast project, so uh, I'm going to do my best to cover it. So, um, of course, I'm going to be spoiling it from beginning to end. So, I'm going to be spoiling, spoiling the entire episode. So, if you haven't seen, if you haven't seen, will the real Martian please stand up? Go check it out. It's available to stream pretty much everywhere. Um, yeah, so I'm going to read the plot summary, courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And spoilers on for Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up. Two patrolmen investigate reports of a flying saucer that, with apparent evidence, knocked off uh, the top of trees and submerged into a pond. Tracks from the pond lead to a nearby diner, so the patrolmen visit the cafe to see if they f- they can find the visitor from outer space. The people in the diner are all passengers of a, bus- of a bus line that has taken a rest while the rickety bridge ahead is checked out. Spooky happenings such as the lights going on and off, sugar containers exploding, and the jukebox starting by itself confirm the suspicion of the patrolmen. After routine questioning and with no law granting the men authority to retain someone under suspicion of being a visitor from outer space, the patrolmen are forced to let the passengers board the bus. An hour later, one of the passengers returns to the diner and explains to the owner that he is the lone survivor. The bridge was not safe and everything and everyone died in the accident. Using three arms to light his cigarette, the old man confesses that he's an advanced scout from the planet Mars, sent ahead for colonization. The diner owner, however, has a surprise of uh has a surprise for his lone uh, customer Jeez, sorry (laughs) he removes his hat to reveal a third eye he's from the planet venus and his friends have intercepted the martians so they themselves can begin colonizing This episode stars John Hoyt as Ross, the businessman and Martian. Uh, this is his second of two, uh, second and final episode of The Twilight Zone. He previously appeared in, uh, season two, episode eight, The Lateness of the Hour. It also feature, This episode also features Jean Wills as Ethel McConnell, the dancer. Uh, this was her only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, she did appear in one episode of Science Fiction Theater called The Stones Began to Move. And she also appeared in 1956's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Which, by the way, just real quick, I got a chance to see Invasion of the Body Snatchers a few years ago. Um, the 1956 Invasion of the Body Snatchers on the big screen at the Artcraft Theater in Franklin, Indiana. If you're near indiana or if you're in if you're in indianapolis if you're near franklin i highly recommend checking out uh the art crafts website and uh if you can i would recommend getting a um gift card because they're an independently run um movie theater that is obviously hurting from the shutdown and everything so i highly recommend checking out if you have the means check out check it out and get a uh, gift card for when they open back up um it's a really great organization that they have there um Continuing with the cast, we have Jack Elam as Avery, the crazy man. This is his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he was a very prolific character actor in Westerns. And he made, according to IMDb, uh, he made a career with his eerie, immobile eye, which was caused by a fight with another kid at the age of 12. Um, apparently, it happened during a Boy Scout meeting that uh, when another boy took a pencil through it and it jabbed his eyeball. Um yeah, and, and Jack Elam, I'll talk more about him as I go into the review and everything, but obviously he is a very standout performance in, uh, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? And is this running? Oh, no, I have many other um, people. This has a big cast, uh, a big ensemble. Uh, Barney Phillips plays Haley, the cook um, at the diner. This is his third of four Twilight Zone appearances. He previously appeared in The Purple Testament and A Thing About Machines. And the next we'll see of him is in Miniature in Season 4. And then as Trooper Bill Paget is John Archer. This is his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he did appear in two episodes of Science Fiction Theater. And he did appear in the 1950 film Destination Moon. Um, which I want to check out. I've never seen or heard of it, really. But apparently it's, it's pretty popular. Um, as Olmstead, the bus driver is William Kendis. And this is his second of two Twilight Zone appearances. He previously appeared in the Season 1 episode The Fever. And, uh, let's see. Okay. And then, seriously, so many, so many people. Uh, Morgan Jones plays Trooper Dan Perry. This is his only Twilight Zone episode. However, he did appear in, uh, uh, Planet, uh, wow, Forbidden Planet in 1956. Um, another movie that I get, to, I got to see at the Artcraft Theater in Franklin. Uh, he played crewman Nichols. And I think this is the last one. Yes. And rounding out the cast is Bill Irwin. Uh, who has, uh, this is his third of four Twilight Zone episodes. He plays Kramer, and he previously appeared in Walking Distance and Mr. Denton on Doomsday. And next we'll see from him is Season 4, Episode 5, Mute. And also, this is apropos of nothing, really, but he did appear in, uh, I, it kind of blew my mind because I didn't realize this, but he is, in Home Alone, one of my favorite movies, uh, he is the he's the man in the couple that, um, when when uh, Catherine O'Hara is trying to get a ticket onto uh, trying to trade like her valuables for a ticket um onto a plane so she can get home, uh, he is the man that tells that tells her that her that his wife has. Uh, a bunch of earrings, um, a whole shoebox full of them, and stuff, and then rushes her, uh, his wife onto the plane with him. Uh, dire- uh, writer for this episode was Rod Serling, and director for "Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up" was Montgomery Pittman. And Montgomery Pittman, this was his first of five episodes of The Twilight Zone that he directed. Um, the next we'll see of him is the season two pr- or season three. Wow, uh, premiere two. And, uh, he also wrote several episodes of The Twilight Zone. Um, he wrote three episodes, two, The Grave and The Last Rites of Jeffrey Myrtlebank. Apparently he, uh, I, w- I almost want to say that he's one of the only, one of, if not the only person to direct and write ep- an episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, but apparently he did that as a means to kind of c- have more creative control over the finished product. So yeah, that's the cast and crew for Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? And I'm going to go into my feelings as a viewer on the episode. First, what I knew before before the episode, unfortunately, I knew quite a bit about it. Because obviously the shot of Barney Phillips with the eye on his forehead is iconic. Like that is something that in terms of pop culture, if you're even peripherally aware of the Twilight Zone, you're going to probably know that that piece of iconography. (laughs) Um, so I knew that in my kind of feelings going into it or my thoughts going into it was that it was an episode about trying to figure out who's an alien, who isn't. Um, and then I also put something about a diner as well. (laughs) So that's all I really knew about it going in. And, uh, yeah, so I'll just go into my review. Um, I really thought that the opening scene with the snow and the alien sound effects was really effective. I, I, Kind of thought that was a really cool effect to really bring us in. And uh, really, that opening scene is a really efficient and clear introduction to the episode. Like, we're brought right into it with the two troopers that are investigating the the landing of the UFO. We get the just really quick... Um, I don't want to say throwaway line, but the really quick just explanation that like, oh yeah, it, it landed in the pond. So we can't see it, but obviously it is in the pond and we see the tracks leading from it. So we get enough information to discern that yes, something landed in a pond and something came out of what landed and walked to a diner. Um Very quick, very efficient, very clear introduction to the episode. And I really like the banner between the tr- two troopers as well. Like, before they head off to the diner before Serling's opening narration, uh, the trooper Paget suggests that the bus came out of the pond. It's just kind of jovial and kind of, kind of funny um, and, and kind of uh, kind of comical in that respect. And then we get Serling's opening narration, which I'll go ahead and play right now.
2: Wintry February night, the present. Order of events, a phone call from a frightened woman notating the arrival of an unidentified flying object. Then the checkout you've just witnessed with two state troopers verifying the event, but with nothing more enlightening to add beyond evidence of some tracks leading across the highway to a diner. You've heard of trying to find a needle in a haystack? Well, stay with us now, and you'll be part of an investigating team whose mission is not to find that proverbial needle, No, their task is even harder. They've got to find a Martian in a diner. And in just a moment, you'll search with them because you've just landed in the twilight zone.
1: And that's Serling's opening narration. It's good. It's clear. It's, it's again, fish efficient and clear introduction to the episode. And, uh, yeah, I, I kind of like the, um, you've heard of hearing a needle in the, uh, finding a needle in the haystack, but now these troopers are going to have to find a Martian in a diner. It's just, I don't know. I kind of like that turn of phrase or that, uh, kind of flipping that on its ear. Um, so then we get the diner. We get the diner. Uh, introduction. We get a nice um, pan from the bus to the diner. We see that the bus is co- like the etching on the bus uh, is chi- uh, Cayuga, which is a nice reference to the production company and the uh, I think lake where where Serling vacationed as a child. And we get the highway cafe. So at this point, I was very interested in the setup. Like I, it felt like it would be. More about fear of the unknown, and in that respect, it would be similar to the monsters are Do on Maple Street. And from the outside, I was I was eager for that to happen. And then as the episode kind of progressed, which I'll talk about more as I go on, I kind of felt like those that expectation of it being like Monsters Are Doing on Maple Street. Which, if you've listened to this podcast, you know that I love the hell out of the Monsters Are Doing on Maple Street. It kind of felt like at times this episode could have and did veer off into kind of re revisiting the the stuff from Monsters of on Maple Street in a way that didn't necessarily satisfy me but I've I've kind of come to terms with it a little bit more uh, as I've rewatched this episode but it kind of left me with a a little bit of a, a bad feeling in my head um, while watching it. I don't know if that's the phrasing I want to use, but uh, but yeah. But I'll talk more about the similarities to monsters are due on Maple Street uh, as I go on to this re- in this review. So again, very efficient storytelling. Once we get into the actual diner, it's very it's established that they're snowed in. The bridge is uh, the bridge is unsafe, and the there's a the turnoff and the way uh, that they came is blocked. So it's very much a story of them, of strangers being snowed in and isolated. And in this respect, it really felt like, it felt like this was the Twilight Zone spin on a murder mystery. Like there are seven people in, in uh, a room that are, that is isolated and one of them is someone who is not who they say they are. And it feels very much like kind of a, kind of a, um, Agatha Christie kind of story and I was kind of all about that (laughs) and I like how little control the troopers have like the troopers don't have to poke and prod that much but when they do it's kind of it's kind of almost a little silly like when they ask the bus driver if he has a manifest for all the passengers and everything uh, the bus driver Olmstead is just like uh, like what do you think I have out there 707 like i don't have a manifest and then i just really like that reaction that he's uh there's there's really a good combination of sharp writing and good performing from from the actor that because he's just like if if we could make if my bosses could make money uh <laughs> uh transporting rum across the border they would do that <laughs> but they're just happy to have whoever can get on the bus um yeah so I, I just I like that introduction and the way that the troopers don 't have full control over it but it 's not that it 's not that everything is out of control not yet and it doesn 't really get to a point where it 's necessarily completely out of control um, like my whole thing between while watching this episode is that it kind of felt like I said like a lot like in a lot like Maple Street and what I've been trying to discern from it as I rewatch and prepare for this recording is how it differs from Maple Street and in one respect it is it is unlike Maple Street in that it doesn't escalate to the point of total chaos like Maple Street does um that's not the goal here this is just a story of strangers <laughs> in a strange place um and with a, a nefarious stranger in their midst Um, and I want to mention real quick, uh, Barney Phillips, uh, he like, there's something about his like look and his just demeanor that he is this incredibly likable presence and it goes further with his dialogue as Haley. Like he talks about, um, how he's, he's just, it kind of comes down as a, as a really down to earth, (laughs) no pun intended and, uh, kind of just friendly guy. Um, yeah, so I just I really appreciate Barney Phillips's performance here, and then we get the introduction of Avery, um, the crazy the crazy guy at the bar, um, and like I I don't like at the beginning that when I first saw this I thought man he is. He's kind of distractingly over the top. Like, he is in a completely different scenario than the other characters. And the more I watched it as, as I prepared for this review, the more I kind of really fell in line with his performance. Like, it is partially meant to misdirect us and think that, oh, well, he's clearly the Martian, but it is more complex than that in that it is, it is, uh, kind of a, um, a wild card character. He is, he's undercutting the seriousness of the situation for comedic effect, but he's also poking fun at the science fiction element of the story, um, which I'll talk more about later. But I just, I really loved his line where he's like, it's just like a science fiction. She is a regular Ray Bradbury. Um, I thought that was really cool and really interesting. Uh, I'll talk more about that later. Um, so then we get, as as the kind of story kind of ramps up uh the troopers have explained that there's you know a um a ufo has landed and there's a mar- uh, there's an alien in our midst um so the dancer says to eliminate the couples and so th- so there are two couples there's an older couple, couple and a younger couple and the younger couple are the ones that kind of uh kind of dis- disprove that theory that they can eliminate the couples. Cause if one person is in one person in the group of seven is not who they say they are, um, the couples should be clear, but the young woman in the couple and the young couple, uh, <laughs> so calls attention to the fact that he doesn't have a mole when she thought that he did. And I, I like that as a way to diffuse that very clear line of logic from the dancer. Um, but i I don't know it doesn't really hold water honestly, like if it's implying that the Martian can change its form um and that like the idea that the Martian changed his form into the young man and for lack of a better word, eliminated the real young man. <laughs> Uh, it would simply be replacing one of the six passengers instead of adding one to their number. Um, so I think maybe, I don't know. It just kind of, it kind of felt a little flimsy to me. Like if there was a line of dialogue where they talked about how, you know, maybe it was two pe- two aliens in the spaceship, but I, I don't know. Maybe I'm splitting hairs there, but I will point out that, and I feel bad saying this, but the man and the young couple, his acting is not great. <laughs> like it just feels really kind of stilted and awkward. I don't believe he really went on to do any acting uh, after this. Um, So, yeah. So, here's where we get to the point where it kind of really feels a little bit too much like the Monsters are due on Maple Street. Kramer calls attention to the fact that the questioning and paranoia is going to cause a panic within the group. and. Like, that, li- that scene, that line of dialogue where he says that, like, you, like he's calling attention to the nonsensical nature of, of their line of questioning, it's extremely similar to Claude Aikens' kind of, is pronouncement of the dangers of being a mob and The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. And I can't really divorce myself from that, because, like, the dialogue is extremely similar. And in The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, it was to a much greater effect. Here, it just it just feels like it's trying to diffuse something that hasn't been <laughs> diffuse something that um hasn't really gotten reached a point of of panic yet and it just feels a little a little bit um unfulfilling to me so i don't know again like and then and, and avery is kind of constantly uh <laughs> constantly like undercutting the seriousness of it and i just the more i revisit it like i said the more i like him as a wild card character and he really elevates the episode um, from from uh from a narrative standpoint in terms of a character that is acting against the tone that could be established in the episode, and so the next kind of line of logic that the that the group faces is the idea of having identification and no one seems to have identification. Like granted it's needed for brevity that, um, they don't go down the line and say like, Oh, I need to see your identification, your identification. But like the dancer is, uh, the dancer doesn't, uh, doesn't have her identification because she accidentally packed it with, with stuff that she sent along. um, and I don't know, like, it's, it's fine, and then I think there's pushback from Ross, or I think Ross actually offers to show his identification and everything, but then people get really agitated by that. Um, I, it, it that felt a little bit flimsy to me, like, it, it didn't feel as clear cut as it probably could have been. Um, I did, I did find it pretty funny and authentic that as the troopers are questioning the bus driver, he, uh, mentions that, uh, or, or when they um, bring up that she that she's the only one that doesn't – she doesn't have any identification, uh, the bus driver comes to her aid and says that she's the only one that the driver can confirm on the bus because – was on the bus because she's attractive. And I thought that was pretty funny and kind of authentic. Um, like, yeah, he's going to notice the, the beautiful woman that was on the bus and no one else. Um, but then here – and again, this, like – Avery kind of uh, responds to that and asks if the driver was really the driver. And again, like that, that's a good way to show. Um, that, that's a good way to foment like doubt within the group. But again, it doesn't really hold that much water because if the driver wasn't really the driver, there would only be seven people in the group, like it, he, the bus driver and the six passengers. Like it's not like. It's not it's not like the alien replacing the driver would re- like add a, a number to the to the um, count in speaking of the number and everything, Ross uh, goes on to suggest that the driver miscounted, which is a simple explanation, simple logic that um, could be followed very clearly and I like that when the driver is adamant that he didn't miscount that's when the jukebox starts on its own. That's when Ross uh, sets the lights to flicker um and and sets the music to play and everything because it is kind of just because Ross is the alien and he he uh uh does that to kind of I don't know divert attention from the bus driver like being adamant that yes there were six people on the bus um but again the idea that the jukebox starts and the lights flicker and everything like the playing with technology and everything it's again it's very similar to maple street and that's something that just didn't really sit that well with me, um, yeah. And that brings us into an act break uh, for the episode, and I I did notice that the jukebox starting even quiets Avery before the before the end of the act break, uh, before the commercial break. But then when we come back, the police are outside, and Avery gets <laughs> gets up and he does a salute to the jukebox and says, "Take me to your leader," and it's it's so much fun. Like he, Jack Elam has so much fun in this role. Um, and it really shows. And it, and again, it just really elevates the episode for me. Um, even though it took a couple of, uh, viewings to really get into that portrayal. Cause I wasn't really, at least that first viewing, I wasn't really too crazy about, uh, just how it is such a counter to the tone of the rest of the characters. So when we get back from the, from the act break, um, I think it's, uh, the bus driver asks Haley, like, did, is that a trick that you did? Is that something that you did? And I like, again, that, uh, that we call attention to the science fiction element of it. Haley says, I'm strictly short orders and paying your taxes. I don't know anything about science fiction. And again, that also plays into the, plays into the portrayal of Haley as someone that's very likable and down to earth for lack of a better term. Um, and I really, probably my favorite thing about this episode and if you can't really tell from my tone like this episode didn't land with me as as quite as well as as um as it seems to have landed with with a lot of people which you know that's just how it comes down sometimes but I do like that this episode is really laying into the science fiction element like the characters themselves they're in the twilight zone they're in a twilight zone scenario but they're not overcome by it or wrapped up in it instead it's almost like the show is lightheartedly poking fun and poking its finger at the idea of the Twilight Zone by having the characters comment on the science fiction element of the story. It's a very interesting kind of meta approach to the story. And it lends a certain realism that makes this episode stand out as one that you don't really have to suspend any disbelief to really buy into. Not that that's necessarily a problem for the Twilight Zone and hasn't been a problem yet, but I think back to, again, drawing comparisons to Maple Street. Like, Maple Street, you kind of have to buy into the idea that these characters are going to... Like, like these characters... like dive into this madness that spreads throughout them because a child tells them stories from a comic book. Um, you do have to suspend your disbelief with that with this, like we get the characters calling attention to the fact that it's a scientific or science fiction trope that they're in, 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 uh, in, in very direct terms. And I think that that's a really interesting, uh, element for the, for the twilight zone to kind of, experience because I can't think of a single episode so far that where they've done that, where it's been called attention to it. Like I don't like I mean Avery like references Ray Bradbury. Like that is just that's nuts to me. Um and it just it really is effective for the episode itself. Like I think it really plays into it and it pays off it sets the groundwork for the payoff at the end of the episode, which of course I'll get to when I get to it. So We get Ross butting heads with the bus driver. Ross's whole thing before the reveal is that he needs to get to Boston for a meeting. He's an important businessman and everything. And we get the bus driver kind of pushing back on him saying like, hey, you might be a big businessman and everything, but I am an expert when it comes to this bridge and that bridge is not safe. I'm not going to like, I'm like, I don't care about your meeting. I'm not going to take you there and risk our lives. And I like that instead of engaging him in a more of an argument, <laughs> Ross just sets the lights off and on again and plays the jukebox and everything, uh, just to kind of undercut the, uh, seriousness of the bus driver's point of view and everything and to create more panic within the group. Um, In to that point, it's kind of refreshing to see the reactions to the unexplained be so measured and non panicking. Like, I is again, it's something else that kind of separates this episode from Maple street. Like the characters do bicker back and forth, but it's in a way that is more, like I said, measured and non panicky. Like they're very, they're very, um, aware of the scenario, but they are bickering back and forth about things as if they are strangers. Like it is very believable that they are strangers bickering and not people who know one another. um, similar to like, like on like in contrast to monsters are doing on Maple street. Those are all neighbors who know each other and everything. And the panic and doubt that is created in that scenario is based on them not knowing people that they are like that they've known for a long time here. It's strictly strangers, not knowing any details about each other and having that kind of weird science fiction, uh, scenario thrust upon them. Um, and it's uh, again, and I hate to just throw this up as like a comparison to Maple Street and everything, but uh, like, it's just not as compelling as Maple Street. Um, so after that, we got Ross has set the phone to ring and, uh, the trooper, you know, answers it. And it's just, it's an electrical engineer telling him that the that the bridge is safe now. And, I kind of like that as kind of just this blind, maybe not st- maybe not conscious statement, but it's kind of interesting that it's just like, oh, okay, well, it's fine that we got we got confirmation. It's fine. We're going to blindly believe that and everything, and we'll go ahead and check it out too. But uh, but yeah, everyone's all good. And I kind of like that idea of the depiction of the Martian uh, when everything kind of comes to a head later in the episode. At the end of the episode, um, this. Kind of idea of this all-powerful Martian, this this all-powerful alien being, and that kind of is kind of frightening. In a in a, if this episode had a darker tone, it would be kind of um, kind of frightening. So, the troopers decide that they can't hold them for, for anything because you know they can't hold people against their will um, for being Martians. So, uh, so then everyone is kind of getting ready to leave. And Haley, again, uh, Barney Phillips is fantastic. He's so like, like friendly, like he's setting up, he's setting everyone's, uh, settling up everyone's tab. And like he, like he has that kind of just polite, like, you know, y'all come back now, except for one of you, cause you're a monster. Um, just really, I, I really like his performance and the kind of, uh, friendly aspect of it. Um, and I couldn't tell if this was, like, a, like, a, a subtle piece of comedy, but when he says that, um, when he's settling the checks and everything, Ross goes up to the counter and then, uh, he says, okay, you had 14 cups of coffee, that's a dollar forty. like, I, I couldn't tell, like, like, is that, like, is it supposed to be a like, cause he's, uh, on edge that he had 14 cups of coffee, like, that's insane, um, But yeah, I thought that was, that was kind of funny. So, uh, they load up on the bus. The troopers kind of check out the dancer, uh, which was kind of funny. And Avery's joking that there'll, there's going to be more, uh, on the bus when they actually get to their destination. I think he said, like, oh, there's seven now, but there's probably going to be 17 when we get there. And I kind of like that as a little bit of a misdirect. Like, even though I know that the end of the episode is going to be at the diner, I kind of thought that, you know, maybe it'll, maybe that would be the end of the episode is that they do show up and there's more people and that's going to be like an invasion of, of, um, of, of aliens. Um, so it was a nice misdirect. And then we get the bus leaving and we come back and Ross comes back into the cafe and that's where this episode just really like goes to a different place, uh, swaps, switches its tone just really, really quickly. Um, he tells Haley that the bridge collapsed, uh, the troopers went in, the bus went down, no survivors, no one got out, and everyone dies. <laughs> like, that is a very dark ending for this episode, especially since we spent, like, the last 20 minutes just being in this, in this diner with these people. I just thought that that was really, uh, just really just Kind of uh, interesting and, and causes a little bit of whiplash, I think, uh, for the for the viewer in a, in a good way. Like it's good storytelling. Um, so we get the reveal that Ross is the Martian. And it was funny because like, I didn't see that coming because the only piece of information about this episode that I knew going in was that Barney Phillips has an eye on his forehead. And so I just assumed that he was the Martian, the titular March Martian of the episode. Uh, so this was a nice surprise to see Ross is actually the Martian and that he's an advanced man from Mars and they're looking to colonize. Um, we get the, and we get the really cool just visual effect of the third arm Coming out of his, uh, um, jacket. And it's just, it's a really cool, like, scene where he's fiddling with the cigarettes and everything, and he has three hands. Um, and also just mentioning the cigarettes like this was Oasis brand cigarettes, which was uh, a sponsor for the for the episode and for the show. And this is where we get like very direct and overt product placement, which usually I hate. I have really I have such a deep seated hatred for product placement that uh, is uh, like in the actual line of dialogue. Uh, but here it kind of feels at least a little bit organic. Like Ross is like, what are these cigarettes you say? They they taste really good or whatever. Um and we see that it is that brand of cigarettes. So I, I don't know. Um, I kind of let that fly on that. Usually I kind of hate that in shows and movies. And so we get kind of the double twist um, where Haley reveals that he's from Venus. And it's such a great like moment because he like is just uh, he's still that kind of friendly kind of di- diner guy. Um, but it's just like he's vaguely threatening to Ross. He's like, Well, you know, I'm from Venus and we came down a lot a lot sooner than you guys did and uh we've been we've been here for a while, so your friends aren't coming and if you're um <laughs> I love this I love this line. Um and if you're still alive you'll see how different we really are and like that's when that we reveal it. And I thought that was a really cool, like chilling moment. Um and that's also what kind of sets the this episode apart from Maple Street as well. It's how insignificant the human factor is. Like, what makes it slightly chilling to me is the idea that Earth is just a playing field for Mars and Venus to destroy each other. Um, and I'm sure that there are kind of parallels to draw with with war and everything. But the scene between um, Ross and Haley at the end of the at the end of the episode just it brings the episode home in a very. Kind of, kind of more satisfying way than, than what the episode had been up until that point. Um, because after being so grounded in reality and even going so far as jokingly poking fun at the actual science fiction element and calling attention to it through dialogue, this scene is what truly brings us into the Twilight Zone itself. Like, it creates this really strong feeling of whiplash in the viewer. Like, up until this point, everything has been grounded in reality. All the dialogue has been, like, very much measured and calm. Like, it's not like they're freaking out over this, uh, over the weird electrical anomalies that are happening. Instead, they're just confused and, and bewildered by it. Um, and so it's a very grounded case of characters being in the Twilight Zone, if we think of the Twilight Zone as a, as a, as a physical entity of physical realm. And then we have that, and then we suddenly just get thrust into it. We, where, we've gone from this small isolated diner of this handful of people talking about things and arguing and bickering. And then we're suddenly in this like solar system. We're in this galactic battle between Mars and Venus. And we're like, we're just brought so much information in this, in this uh, scene between Ross and Haley that it just, it feels just, it um, feels, it weights the episode uh, it, it gives a more weighted feel to the episode and more uh, kind of storytelling importance I guess um, yeah and then we're left with that like it's just it's, uh, that's it that's the end of the episode and again I, I'll go ahead and play Serling's closing narration and then go into my closing thoughts for the episode so here's Serling's closing narration for the will the real Martian please stand up
2: <laughs> incident on a small island to be believed or disbelieved. However, if a sour-faced dandy named Ross or a big good-natured counterman who handles a spatula as if he'd been born with one in his mouth, if either of these two entities walk onto your premises, you better hold their hands, all three of them, or check the color of their eyes, all three of them. The gentleman in question might try to pull you into the Twilight Zone.
1: Alright, and so my overall thoughts on this episode is that it, it's solid. Like, it is, it's an iconic episode of The Twilight Zone. There's iconic imagery. Like, the, the, uh, the makeup effects of the, of the eye on the forehead is really cool. And the visual effect of the, the three arms on Ross is really cool as well. And I also just like the set design. The, the snowy, um, the snowy kind of wooded area at the beginning of the episode was really good at establishing like the isolation and, and uh, the kind of the crazy erratic weather and it sells the isolation really well. Um, of course, obviously I've, I'm my kind of overall thoughts are hampered by my appreciation and just sheer love for the monsters are due on Maple Street, which shares a lot of similarities with this episode. So I kind of had to really kind of work to um, find uh, really work to kind of divorce myself from the similarities between the two episodes. Obviously I much prefer the monsters are due on Maple street, but as a piece of more lighthearted twilight zone fair and, uh, kind of more comedic, I guess. Um, I do, I do appreciate Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? So I, I did like the episode. It just didn't really hit me as hard as some of the other episodes have. Or, spoiler alert for next episode, uh, The Obsolete Man did, because, man, I'm excited to talk about that episode. Okay, and before I get to trivia and everything for Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up, I do want to mention that this was adapted um, into a graphic novel published in 2009, and I do have a copy of that, and I read it, so I'm going to kind of give my brief thoughts on the graphic novel. Um, it follows the story pretty closely with no real big deviations. There are some expansions of it, like the bus driver and the dancer become more of an item as the as the story progresses, um, and that, that kind of interaction gets more time on the page, and I think I think there's some friction between him and Ross over it, like they kind of fight over it, um, or the fight over the dancer, not it, Jesus Christ. Um, they fight over the woman. Um, and there's some more interesting stuff. Uh, or there's more expansion, I should say. Um, one of the big moments of it is that at the end, like I said, it does follow, uh, the story pretty closely, but at the end, Haley has four eyes instead of three. And I thought that was interesting because it honors the original idea of the episode, which I'll talk about, uh, in trivia, which, uh, yeah, I will go into trivia for, will the real Martian please stand up? Um, obviously I mentioned in the review, the name of the bus line is, uh, Cayuga, which is a which is you know referencing Cayuga productions and uh, some other interesting kind of naming things is that the character of Olmstead um, and the character uh, Connie Prince they were named after Connie Olmstead who is who was Serling's personal secretary uh, Peter and Ross uh, Peter and Rose Kramer was another uh, th- uh, another kind of Trivia piece in <laughs> uh, joke. Uh, Carol Serling's maiden name was Kramer. So that's where that name came from. And Avery was named after Ira L. Avery, who was a friend of Serling's who had written tele- teleplays for uh, Armstrong Circle Theater and the Philco Television Playhouse. And finally, uh, the character of Ethel McConnell was named after Ethel Winnant, uh, who was the casting director for The Twilight Zone. Okay, and as I said in the in the talk about the graphic novel, uh the alien from Venus was uh supposed to have four eyes. Um so an extra two on his forehead to indicate uh extra two on the forehead. <laughs> the makeup artist for the show, William Tuttle, was only able to add one eye to the forehead, and he did that by rigging a hidden wire designed to allow a man off-camera to move the left uh, to move the eye left and right. Okay, and rounding out trivia, this episode was uh, referenced in the song The Twilight Zone by uh, the band uh, Rush. So, uh, yeah, the that ep- uh, that song uh, has a lot of references to The Twilight Zone, of course. <laughs> it makes references to Stop Over in a Quiet Town, which obviously I haven't seen yet. And, uh, yeah, so that's pretty interesting. Apparently it makes reference uh, to this episode. Okay, and that's my review of Will the Mar- Real Martian Please Stand Up? Oh, I had one other thing. Why didn't I not um, have that here? Oh, okay. Yeah, I forgot this crap. Um, so, uh, final piece of trivia for Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up is that the initial draft of the script uh, was originally titled Nobody Here But Us Martians um which i believe is a reference to an ad campaign for chicken or chicken is i don't know any nobody here but us chickens i think i don't know i'm way off on that uh, or i'm possibly way off on that um so the episode actually had that title nobody here but us martians um for the duration of production and the title was eventually changed before airing um to will the real martian please stand up and i didn't know this this is interesting the new title was um kind of a reference to a popular television game show called to tell the truth um in which the host bud collier uh coined the phrase well the real and then whoever the secret celebrity in the show was please stand up so i didn't know that that's interesting and then, of course, obviously, um, Eminem has the song, Will the Real Slim City Please Stand Up. Okay, and that'll do it for trivia for Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up. And I'm going to round out this episode with a brief non-spoiler review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 9, Death at 2 a.m., So science fiction theater is obviously I mentioned in the last episode that unfortunately the DVD of the complete series is out of print from shout factory. So, uh, and also the YouTube channel that, uh, had a ton of episodes uploaded is now inactive. Um, if there is, I didn't have it in my notes, but if there is a, uh, if this episode is available on that DailyMotion.com website, I will put a link in the show notes. I believe it is. So, science fiction theater. So death at 2 AM, um, the pre-show thing had, um, had Truman Bradley, the host, uh, talking about strength, um, and how, uh, the, the normal man is supposed to be able to lift the equivalent of his own weight. And he, I thought this was funny. There's like, there's like, uh, um, a, uh, wow. Uh, a piece of, um, (laughs) of weightlifting equipment. Oh my God. Why am I not? This is, this shows a lot. Uh, this this is revealing a lot about how sedentary my life is, but there is a a barbell with weights, I think is the correct, um, (laughs) correct verbiage. Um, but he, he, uh, squats down to try to lift it. Uh, but he can't. It's kind of a kind of a kind of a cute like, oh, I can't lift a thing. But it's funny because it, like it looked like he was lifting, like he was lifting with his back, and I was like, uh, you're not supposed to do that. I don't know if that was something. But anyway, he goes on to talk about how, you know, when uh, like the ancient Greeks um, created levers and pulleys, and kind of talks about the history of them and how the machine age gave rise to man being able to lift things through machinery and stuff, and then he kind of transitions over to ants. Like obviously like it's everyone knows ants can lift like 10 times their body weight and everything. So, um, that's kind of the preamble to this episode. I thought it was a very, a very good preamble. Um, it kind of demonstrates a lot and it goes into, um, some stuff for the, uh, episode, uh, plays, it ties in well to the episode itself. So death at 2am, the synopsis, is police suspect a scientist and his helper of murder. Problem is, neither man has the strength needed to kill the victim in the manner he was killed. This episode of Science Fiction Theater was directed by Henry S. Kessler and written by Ellis Marcus with a story by credit from Ivan Tors. Uh, This episode stars Skip Homier, John Quaylen, Ted DeCorsia, Virginia Hunter, and Douglas Henderson. So... I've talked a lot about uh, how science fiction theater plays up the scientific aspect of it more than the, the science fiction aspect of it. And it's kind of grounded in reality, which I appreciate about the show. Um, this episode has an interesting twist to it. It opens up with this murder that happens in an alley. like It's, it's a scuffle um, and ends up with, with a man being strangled. And so from that point on, it goes into this kind of police procedural like kind of criminal conspiracy thing married with this scientific aspect to it, which i thought was an interesting way to complement the story like those two aspects of the story complement because there's a police officer detective who comes to question um a couple of the characters. So there's assistant professor Reynolds and professor Avery. Professor Avery is an older man and assistant professor Reynolds is a younger man, obviously. Um, And so it's revealed that Reynolds has this criminal record and he was being uh, shaken down by the, by the victim of the murder. So this guy Munson had sent him a threatening letter to blackmail him because Reynolds has a criminal record. So, as the show progresses, we kind of discover that what happens is that what happened is that Reynolds has a perfect alibi for it. And when it's revealed, like what actually happened, um, to kill, to have Munson killed, um, is very much steeped in professor Avery's scientific endeavors and everything. Um, That's all I'll say about that, because I want to keep it vague in case you want to check it out. But I really, like I said, I kind of like the way that it marries science and criminal conspiracy. Like, these characters are in the middle of of a criminal investigation, and... Uh, Avery is setting up this scientific thing for Reynolds to kind of run with because Avery feels like he doesn't have a lot of time left. So he lets Reynolds into his scientific experiments and kind of the overarching theme of the episode, which I thought was really interesting, if not a little uh, bit too on the nose, is that the kind of episode, the, the kind of, um, the whole point of the episode, I would say, is that the the theme of the episode is that it's uh, it's the folly of humanity attempting to jumpstart evolution. So we get kind of theories about like super strength and get imbuing humans with just unnatural strength and everything, and how that is against the will of evolution, essentially. So it's kind of heavy kind of some heavy topics to kind of play with and it plays with it pretty well. Like it, it does demonstrate it pretty well and is, uh, is an interest, interesting cautionary tale, uh, for like, uh, selfish science, I guess, or scientific discovery that is more for selfish reasons than actual, you know, humanity. Um, yeah. And I guess that'll do it for this, uh, for this review of science fiction theater, uh, death at 2 a.m., it is, it's solid, like, uh, like the rest of the episodes have been. I do want to mention that I'm excited because I am now on disc two of the complete series box set. So it's an eight, eight disc, uh, DVD set, and I am now officially on disc two. So that's awesome. Hope you guys enjoy these bonus reviews of science, science fiction theater, by the way. Um, yeah. And that'll do it for this episode of anthology. Um next week or next time on the podcast. I know I'm a little bit rusty on on the uh release schedule, but next time on the main feed I'm going to be reviewing the season 2 finale of The Twilight Zone, The Obsolete Man. Cannot wait to get to that episode. Um I watched it uh, a couple weeks ago and it has not left my mind like it is I'm very excited to just kind of dive into it in this podcast so look forward to that coming soon the bonus review on that um, or the the supplementary review on that episode will be Conversation with an Ape from Season 1 of Science Fiction Theater. Uh, so yeah, and then sometime before that, I will have my next, um, episode of my bonus review series of Black Mirror Season 5. I'm going to be talking about Smithereens, which is a very un-science fiction episode of Black Mirror. So I'm excited to revisit that and, uh, talk about it to myself while people listen to me. So, uh, yeah, so that'll do it for this episode of. Anthology, once again, check out patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Minimum rate of $1 per month. Uh, you can get access to a special RSS feed with content recorded specifically for Patreon supporters. Most of it is just bantering back and forth with my co-hosts over at Obsessive Viewer and Tower Junkies, but I'm going to make a concentrated effort to do more solo uh, recordings for Anthology listeners and talking more about science fiction and um, that doesn't really fall under the umbrella of the things that I cover on Anthology. So check that out, anthology or uh, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And also check out my other shows, uh, obsessive viewer podcast and tower junkies, um, the Stephen King podcast, uh, with an occasional focus on the dark tower series. <laughs> uh, yeah, without further ado or, or the, that's wrapping it up. Oh my God. I need to eat lunch. <laughs> so, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you guys for your support and for, for, uh, you know, subscribing and listening to me and everything. Um, glad to be back. Hope you guys are being safe and healthy and everything. And hopefully um, hopefully, this pandemic is not uh, affecting your life too hard um, and you guys are being safe and healthy. So thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next time. And now here's a clip from a recent episode of Tower Junkies, a podcast exploring the work of Stephen King from obsessiveviewer.com. It is that is it is one of the most satisfying movie moments I've maybe ever had. Like yes. I and it it's really mind-blowing that like i can still feel this way when we have the portals scene from the avengers endgame (laughs) and we have like so much other stuff going on but like this is such a unique meld of it's it's such a cool moment to uh end the the movie on it's so great
0: um it is one of the best examples of fan service that i can think of
1: yeah and like true fan service like yes like i said earlier in the episode like it's fan service from a fan perspective like it's someone who clearly has a deep admiration and love for this work and for this this person's body of work and it's just it is so uh, it's just perfect it's it's just perfect um It, it really is yeah
0: anthology is edited and produced by matt hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com for a full archive of our episodes go to anthologypod.com slash archive you can also like the facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow the show on twitter at ovanthologypod. if you enjoy the show please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on apple podcasts this is the easiest way to support what we do and all it costs is a little bit of your time Official anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewers Tea Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode, and at anthologypod.com/donate, or you can simply search for "Obsessive Viewer" at teapublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewers annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at Obsessive Viewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower Series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty!
2: She's just like a science fiction, that's what she is. A regular Ray Bradbury. Six humans and one monster from outer space.